The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture reading is in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. It is on page 945 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Would you stand as I read the word of God? Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hey, y'all. As uh, Brian shared, my name is John Kleinschmidt. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Just uh, as a side note before we start, um, and as a thank you, uh, about April 1st, I started having nerve pain. Some of you know uh, in my back and in my leg, um, and it came from reoccurring back issues over several months. Um, And that led to a point where I ended up having surgery in the first part of July, uh, just because it got to a point where it was unbearable. I couldn't sleep anymore, um, couldn't function. Um, And I just wanted to say thank you. Just thank you to so many of you who've uh, prayed for me and for my family. Thank you for those who have, uh, you know, come out to our house to do stuff. Um, thank you for those who've been open to phone calls on hard days um, or easy days. Thank you for those who've offered to watch our kids and done such a great job at it. Thank you to my bride who has um, just done more than I can fathom. Um, thank you for those who've just, you know, given us uh, meals or um, monetarily things just to help offset things. Um, it just means a lot. I just want to say thank you. Um, It really means a lot, and I thank you for being a part of our life and a part of our family here at Delta and caring about us as individuals, um, no matter what we're doing or can or can't do. just want to say thank you for that. Um, I am recovering, and I am getting better. I'm up here, which is a win. Six weeks ago, it wouldn't have happened. It would have been an ugly mess of probably tears and pain. 
but um, I'm here. Um, I still I can't sit for very long. Um, I still have some pain here and there for sure. Um, there's not a lot I can do. So that's good news for you. Maybe this will be a short sermon um, because I need to go home and lay down. But that's okay. Uh, don't start praying for that. That's not cool. Um, but the reality of it is, is um, thanks for being you and thanks for being in our life. Okay. Um, let me pray and then we'll uh, get into an illustration and then into Hebrews chapter 8. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you know what you're doing. I thank you that you're faithful. I thank you that the book of Hebrews was written to an actual people in an actual time who had actual struggles, who are actually processing things. And I thank you that it's not meant to just be um, old or just good advice. It's not meant to just be something that somebody said, but it's meant to impart life to us. So we're asking this morning, Holy Spirit, would you come and teach us and grow us and build us up? Would you take our feeble offering of our time and would you open our minds and our hearts to be more faithful to you and to love you more? Would you burden us with prayer? Would you burden us with your word? And would we enjoy that burden because we know it's a gift, not because it's an actual burden, but rather it leads us to where we want to be. Uh, God, I just pray right now that you would bind the enemy from this place. We pray right now that you would just put uh, walls of protection around us and all the things that are just maybe wanting to be a fog and, and uh, blind us this morning. Would you just clear it? Would your sun um, shine down on it and just make the mist fade away so we can hear, see, and be changed by you? Um, yeah, in, this, in your name, amen. In college, I uh, learned an instrument called the guitar. Um, so anybody here um, know an instrument of some sort? I didn't say well, I said know an instrument of some sort. Okay, good. Brian Hubert, raise your hand. You did a little bit. We'll talk about him and guitar later. But he gave it away to us, so anyway. Uh, but I learned guitar, and a friend of mine, Andrew Walker, taught me how to play. And Andrew didn't really know how to teach um, guitar, but he knew how to make me do stuff, so we did it. Um, but through the time, a lot of it he told me off the bat was to play repetition, do certain chords over and over again to build up calluses on my hand. Because if you know anything about playing guitar, if you don't do that, it becomes very painful um, off the bat because your fingers aren't used to the, the sharpness of the strings and actually pushing them down with force. Um, and over time, it just did. It built them up and I could play a lot better. Um, well, I say all that because the book of Hebrews um, up to this point and today too and in the coming weeks is going to be on repeat. It's going to be on repeat hitting the same ideas over and over and over again. And the author is a legitimate person writing to a legitimate people. And he's trying to make a legitimate point. Um, and I just want to let you know that it is purposeful. And don't miss it. Don't, get, um, don't let the calluses that build up make you callous to the word. Let them rather build you up purposely because maybe God's wanting you to understand the depth of Christ, the depth of the new covenant, the depth of the sacrifice in a new way. So just stick with us. That would be my encouragement. Don't become numb. Don't become numb. Um, today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8, and I'll just go ahead and give you the main idea. The main idea is this. Jesus is a superior high priest in heaven. I'm sorry. Jesus is a superior high priest who ministers a superior covenant with superior promises. Jesus is a superior high priest who ministers a superior covenant with superior promises. Go to Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 5. 
Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, who also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. All right, so this leads us to point number one. Point number one is this. Jesus is a superior high priest in heaven ministering for his people. Jesus is a superior high priest in heaven ministering for his people. So the author does something right off the bat that's unique in scripture. Um, He basically says the summation of his main point for the book of Hebrews. He's saying, hey, everything I've said up to this point, everything I'm about to say after this point, this got one central theme, verses one and two. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He's saying that this is a theme throughout the book that he wants you to get that, hey, Christian, your high priest is in heaven. He is in heaven and he is still working. That it's not just what Jesus has done on the cross, but it's also what Jesus is doing presently of intercession. And that is unique and that is powerful and that is supposed to just ground us back to this reality. This is purposeful because we have to understand it because it matters. It's not just what has Jesus done, but also what is Jesus doing. That's why we say sometimes it's not just what you believed one time, it's what are you believing that matters. So as we get into this, we just need to know this because he's trying to get our hearts to see that this is the summation of the book. So I'm just going to show you two passages that already are going to say a similar thing so we can see that this is the theme. Hebrews 1.3 says this, After making purifications for sin, Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 12.2, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Everything is about Jesus and his superiority and where he is ministering now. And now he's turning to try to help us understand why that superiority is better, why it's a superior covenant, and why it's then superior promises. So there's five ways in this text that he highlights, and some of these are repeat, why Jesus is a superior high priest. And a high priest is somebody who is a representative. He offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people, someone else, a sacrifice for sin. Number one, Jesus is a superior high priest because of his location, because of his location. He is in heaven. I'm hoping we can agree that heaven is superior than earth. If we can't, whole nother sermon, okay? But it's superior. He's in a superior location than the earthly high priest. Number two, that he's superior. He's superior in proximity. He is, in verse one, in the very presence of the Father. He's seated, which is something we're going to talk about in a second. But he's in God's presence continually. He's constantly in the Father's presence. He's not in and out. He's not there sometimes and not there sometimes. His service, his ministry is continual. As Brian talked last week, And the weeks before even, his life is eternal. He never dies. He's always present there. 
Number three, he's superior in posture. He's superior than the high priest on earth in posture because he's sitting. Okay, he's sitting, and that's a place of power at the right hand. This is what it would have represented in that day. It's this idea of the place of power, of authority, and that he's not going anywhere. If you legitimately love Jesus, Jesus is not going anywhere in his intercession or his care for his people. He doesn't stop doing what he's doing. He's there. He's seated. He has no more sacrifices that he needs to give. There's no more that he needs to add to. His work is done in regards to our salvation, and now he's finishing his intercession and continuation till the end. The fourth that he's superior is that he's in the true tent. So it's going to talk a little bit about the tent that was on earth was a shadow or a copy, that he's in the true tent, in the true tabernacle in heaven, giving the true sacrifice. That we're going to see in a little bit about this copy or the shadow, how everything kind of points to him. But he's in the true and the real thing, not just a replica. Okay? So I don't know if you guys have ever had um, seen those little cars that you can have that's like maybe a NASCAR, and then you can pay like, pay like 60 bucks and get one that's like a 14th of the size. Anybody seen that? Anybody paid 60 bucks for those? Yeah, I got a few people. JT, thank you for your honesty. So, uh, yeah, so you can get those. Well, that's a replica. It's not the real thing. It's not a real thing. But it gives you a glimpse at the real thing, right? You can touch it. You can feel it. But it doesn't actually get you in the car. So he's in the true tent. And the last the way that he is superior is in sacrifice. That's verse 3. It talks about this, this high priest had something that he had to offer to. That he had to offer to. But he's not giving... Like the other high priest, he's not giving bulls and goats. He's not sacrificing other things. His sacrifice was his body, himself. If you look back up in chapter 7, he says, He has no need, so this is verse 27, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all he, when he offered up himself. He has a greater sacrifice than the earthly high priest. Jesus is superior. And it's been the theme throughout the book and it's going to keep being the theme. He's a superior representative. And we need to get that. Because sometimes I don't think we believe it. We don't act like it's true. We just go back to trying to do our best rather than trusting that Christ is the best. And the last little part there, it talks about in the basically three through five that the earthly tent is a copy or a shadow so when this has given us insight into this theme that's going to be through the rest of uh, Hebrews, he's going to start talking about how things that are set up in the old covenant were a shadow, a glimpse, not the reality. Whether it's the high priest, whether it's the sacrificial system, whether it's the tabernacle, it was all pointing to something greater. So um, we like to deer hunt, and one of the most beautiful things in the morning is when the sun comes up, it hits these huge trees that you can be sitting by, right? And what's it create when it comes over the hill and the trees here? It creates a... Thank goodness one person got it. Apparently it was a bad example to everyone else. It's a shadow, right? So it creates that shadow, but that shadow isn't the real thing. Really, if you follow the shadow, it's supposed to lead back to the tree, right? If you follow that shadow where it leads, it leads to the tree. And he's just saying, hey, this copy, this tent, this thing was a shadow that wasn't the fullness therein. It's supposed to lead us back to the tree of Christ, the tree of Christ. Jesus is a superior high priest ministering heaven for his people. And this superior priesthood of Jesus 
leads us to a superior covenant that he ministers. That's going to be verses 6 through 9. Please read with me. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for the second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Point number two, Jesus ministers a superior covenant. Jesus ministers a superior covenant. So we can see this in verse 6, right? So if you, if you look back at verse 6, see this? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So Jesus has a superior covenant. So we have to see that the author is just trying to communicate that he is a better mediator and a better minister. His ministry is better because he is better. His ministry is better because of where he ministers is superior in heaven. The covenant he mediates is better. We're going to see that as we get into what the promises are. And those promises are better. Um, but one thing we'll see is that the reality of it is that the promises are better because of who makes the promises. And the promises are meant to, are in, eternal, not temporal. So we're going to get into what those actually are in our next section as we look at the other verses. But the question still remains, what was wrong with the first covenant? What was wrong with it? The author states that the Jesus mediates and ministers a better covenant due to the first one having fault. Does anybody here like to be at fault? I got somebody to raise their hand. None of us do, right? So this is one of those things we can shy away from, right? He's about to say that somebody was wrong. Did you know that it's okay to be at wrong sometimes? So one of the things when you read the scriptures, when you start to see things like that, we can shy away or start to justify. But here he's about to tell us who's at fault. And there might be a part of us be like, yeah, but that's kind of unfair. He's trying to be honest about where the problem lies. So right off the bat, he says the covenant that he, uh, or you should know this, excuse me. The covenant in mind is the law of Moses. Okay? So um, we can see that from verse 9 where it talks about him leading out of Egypt. And this could also be known as the covenant of the law. And here he begins to quote Jeremiah 31 um, verse, uh, chapter 31, uh, verses 31 through 34. And he does this to illustrate the problem with the old covenant, that there was a fault of it, and that there was a promise all along for a new. So he's telling his audience, there was always a promise of a new because there was always a problem with the first. But one of the things we have to understand is that there, uh, there are different forms of covenant. Um, there just was throughout the Bible and throughout time. And a covenant is an agreement. And one of the main forms was an if you will, I will. So say that with me. If you will, I will. I messed that up because I should have said prepeat after me. It would have been better. So if you will, I will. Sorry, I messed up Tom again. You want to do it again? Okay, all right. Ready? If you will, I will. You guys are great. Thank you. Um, I need all the help I can get. I'm just going to keep pacing back and forth here. It would be great. So if you will, I will was the main form. 
And so uh, if you will follow my decree, I will bless you. I will multiply you. If you will do what I've agreed upon, things will go well for you. But at the same time, an inverse is if you don't, I won't. If you turn from me or pursue another, I will judge you and you will be ruled by another nation. Or I will, you know, send my army just if it was a nation to nation. I will send my armies and crush you if you do not hold up your end of the bargain. So most covenants were if you will, I will. And if you don't, I won't. So as it says in verse 7, there was faults. And it leads us to what was the fault. We see in verse 8 and 9 it tells us. For he finds fault with them. Verse 8. And go to the middle of verse 9. For they did not continue in my covenant. The problem with the first covenant or the covenant of the law was not God, was not the law. It was the people. The fault was the people. The problem was the people. The people could not and did not hold to their bargain. God laid out for them his law, and if you obey, I will, I will be enemies to your enemies. I will give you a land. I will provide health for you. But the inverse was also true. If you don't, I won't. I will not honor it. And you can see this in Exodus 20 through 24. And 24-7, all the people said this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And they failed, and they kept on failing. So we're in response to their sin. It says that God showed no concern for them. Verse 9, which is never a verse that we all like to see or love to hear. God showed no concern for them. So, so what does that mean? He had no concern for them. Does that stop meaning that God stopped caring for the nation of Israel? Stopped wooing them, working? Um, no. Uh, I believe what he's trying to say here is that he no longer showed concern for them due to the covenant law and them keeping it. He, he no longer showed concern for them due to them keeping the covenant of the law. Rather, all the acts that God did that showed care for the people, such as sending them prophets and judges and even nations at times to draw them back, were not in response to Israel obeying the law or honoring the covenant of Moses, but rather it was God honoring his name and honoring the covenant of Abraham. That his response of care was not because they were good enough, was not because they were being faithful enough. His response of care was because he was honoring his promises. And he does not want them to think otherwise because they broke the covenant. It wasn't working. If you read Exodus, they broke it in about, I don't know, 38 days. They broke it. And they just kept doing so. So to be a better covenant, Jesus has to deal with the problem. And that leads us to better promises. Better promises. And that's point number three. The covenant Jesus ministers has superior promises. The covenant Jesus ministers has superior promises. Verses 10 through 13. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. 
After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete, growing old, is ready to vanish away. It's ready to vanish away. So first thing I want us to notice here is the difference in covenant, remember? So what was the first covenant? If you will, I Here we see that God's saying, I'm going to make a covenant, and it's not going to be based on if you will, I will. Four times he says, I will. I'm going to act. I'm going to do something. I'm going to act. I'm going to be the changing agent. I'm going to deal with the problem by me, not by them. He's going to do it. Commentators are called like the covenant of grace, unmerited favor, God making a decision to act on his own accord apart from anything we bring to the table. It's not going to rest on man. I can't overstress this, that God's going to act in the new covenant, in his work of Christ who inaugurates the new covenant through his blood, is what he says in Luke. He's going to do it because of him. It's not better just because of what these promises do, although they are better because, that's their, because they're eternal, but in who makes the promises and who fulfills it, which is God himself. So he's writing to these people in Jeremiah, and he's telling this, um, excuse me, in the book of Jeremiah, and he's trying to communicate this reality. So there's three promises here that we're going to hit on, okay, of what God's going to do. And I'm going to use it through the terms of change. Say change. Great. So he's going to do it through three changes we're going to see. Okay. First one, and we're going to break these later. They'll be up on the screen. Okay. But the, fir- the first change, just so you know ahead of time, is there will be a change in his people. There's going to be a change in his people. The second is there's going to be a change in relationship. There's going to be a change in relationship. And the third we're going to see is there's going to be a change in how God views his people's sin. Okay. That's what it's going to be. So we're going to hit on that first one, first promise is that there's going to be a change in his people. God is going to change us. See that in verse 9, excuse me, verse 10? For I will put laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. God is going to make a change in our desires and empower us to walk in them. He's going to write the law our minds and our hearts. Romans 1 says that when sin entered the world, we were all broken and that people rejected God and they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Jeremiah 17 says that our hearts are deceptively wicked. Who can understand it? And Proverbs 14 and 16 talks about the reality that there's ways that seem right to us that in the end lead to death. That for true change, we need new minds and new hearts. Because the law didn't change anyone. The law didn't make anyone more obedient. It exposed their disobedience. Because God's looking for the heart. So this promise here is um, this promise of God that he's going to change his people. In the New Testament, it's considered this idea of new birth 
or new creation or born again by the Holy Spirit. These are themes you'll see as you read your Bible. So, and, and we read this earlier from Ezekiel, but it's worth mentioning again. Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, recounts the promise of the New Covenant, saying something very similar to this from the quote of Jeremiah. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27 says this, I will take from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all the idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Through the work of Jesus, inauguration of the new covenant, and through life in him, by the Spirit, people will receive the Holy Spirit and would be changed and empowered to love Him and obey Him from the heart and seek to honor Him in their mind in ways they could not do before. Romans 5 says that when we come to Christ, if we, once we truly believe that the Holy Spirit's poured into us and that the love of God is in our hearts, um, uh, Romans 8 talks to the reality that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't live by the law. We live by the Spirit, um, adhering to God's word, and, we, and we're killing sin by the power of the Spirit, not because we're good enough, not because we can white-knuckle it, not because we're smart enough, but because of him. Galatians 5 talks of this walking in the Spirit and how in that there is no law that we're needing to adhere us in because the Spirit's working in and through God's people. That God promises to change his people. That doesn't mean that they're perfect, but it means that their deepest desire, their deepest desire, if you cut it all away, is that they want to love God, to love his word, even in their shortcomings, and that their deepest heart passion is for him. Years ago, before my wife was a, a Christian, that, we, we talked about that. That was one of the things that God used to open her eyes. We said, you can know when you're a Christian. Like, what's your deepest desire? And I remember her sitting there, and she goes, my deepest desire is me, not God. And for whatever reason, God opened her eyes by the Spirit to make that all make sense. And he changed her that night. He changes our desires. He changes our wants doesn't make us perfect, but he changes how we define burden or not. 1 John 5, 3 says this, For the love of God, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We, he redefines how we see. Not perfectly, but the struggle's real. Romans 7 and Romans 8. Not, we're not perfect, but we desire the deepest level, and we're empowered by God's grace to walk it out, even imperfectly. So the first promise is that God will change his people, their hearts and minds, will want to obey and empower him by their spirit. The second promise of the new covenant is that there's going to be a change in relationship, a change in relationship. We're going to hit that on two parts. 
And this is going to be flowing out of the end of chapter uh, verse 10 and then the first part, or excuse me, verse 11. 10b. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the next part he says, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So there's going to be a change in relationship that Jesus is going to change the way that we interact. That's the promise, that there's going to be a change in regards to our interaction with the Father and with each other. See, if you look across all the new covenant promises, you'll see over and over again what they'll talk about in the promise of the new covenant, that he's going to gather all the people from all the nations and that they would be his people and he would be their God. See, in the old covenant, uh, or Israel was a, a, a nation of people, or a bloodline was the main focus. See, but in the new covenant, when it's talking about Israel, it's talking about a spiritual Israel, or a spiritual Jew. So um, Romans 2, I believe it's verse 29, would talk about that you, a true Jew, is not one of physical Judaism, but a true Jew is that of the Spirit, of that of the Spirit, okay? So he's trying to convey that in the new covenant, all God's people are going to become united and he's going to draw all people from all nations to him and that they're all going to be his people and, they're all, and he's going to be their God. And it's because there's no, um, how do I say this? There's no non-practicing Christians. You could have had an Israelite in the Old Covenant who isn't doing sacrifices, isn't doing um, what they could be, you know, uh, they aren't following the law, they aren't doing these things, and they're just in some other nation doing what they want. But in the new covenant, what he's trying to say is all the people are going to be born again, and there isn't going to be just some people who can't really be my, that I'm not really their Lord, and they can kind of act like it, kind of not, and I'm not, they're not really my child because they left, they did this. It's like, no, I'm going to work in such a way that all of my people are going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. So that, that's my child. That's my son. That's my daughter. And all their brokenness, they're mine. And people would say, that's my God. He's mine. I love him. I seek him. I'm imperfect and I run to him. Because there'd be a change in us. Our relationship would be that of son and daughter and all our brokenness. And the second would be that they will all know me. No one's going to have to teach somebody saying, know the Lord. So now this doesn't mean that there's no teaching happening within the church, because if you read the rest of the Bible, um, there is things we need taught. God's wired the body of Christ to have people who are teachers, that we help each other grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. Just look at Ephesians chapter 4. But what I believe he's saying here. Um, and this is helpful from a conversation I had with Brian Hubert earlier this week. I believe just what he's saying here is, once again, in, in, in the old covenant idea, there'd be people who way off the reservations, and, and they could be anywhere and just not following. If you just look at when they draw the people back, and let's say Nehemiah or Ezra, these people aren't following the law, aren't pursuing God, and people could say, know the Lord. Come, do, participate, be in these things. And he's saying that in the new covenant, the entry into the new covenant is new birth or is new knowledge or is knowing the Lord. That everyone who's really in the new covenant already knows God because that's the entry in. We receive the spirit and now we have knowledge of him. That we are his sons and daughters. So Romans 8 says it this way. 
Romans 8, 14 through 16, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, or Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That you're a child. That you're a child. That when we get saved, we are reborn and we're in God's family. And we know the Lord deeply and personally. And no one needs to fill in that gap of relationship. You don't have to go to my four kids and say, hey, who's your dad? And they have to be like confused and look around. Nobody needs to fill the gap of relationship. They still can learn more about me, but our relationship, they know, they see, they experience because I'm their dad. They were born into our family. So when we're reborn into God's family, we know him. We know him personally and deeply, and we know him more and more. But nobody needs to bridge that gap. This leads us to the third promise. The third promise is that there will be a change through the work of Jesus Christ and change in how God views our sin. There's going to be a change in how God views our sin. And this is going to be uh, verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So this is an amazing thing. Uh, in Jeremiah's day, as the people are sitting under judgment because of the rebellion and uh, their continuation um, in it, and that they hate Jeremiah and all that he's saying, even though it's true. So um, he, he, this prophecy comes that well, I will one day be merciful toward these people and remember their sins no more. So Jesus' sacrifice, which we'll see in detail in the next two chapters, did something and changes the way God views his people's sin compared to the old covenant. The old covenant, when sin, when it broke the covenant, automatic was judgment and that there was a sacrifice needed over and over and over and over and over again. And I don't know that we get the weight of that, but honestly, if you look back and read Leviticus, like if you wanted to give thanksgiving to God and for it to be pure and holy, something had to die. Like go read it. Oh, you want to give a Thanksgiving offering? Something's got to die for you to approach God to do it. Like, we were so broken that that had to happen. So every time that we sin, every time that we fall short, every time that we disobey, there had to be some sort of a sacrifice over and over and over and over again. So to hear to say that he's going to be merciful towards our iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more is radical and a shift in the point the author's been trying to make and will continue to try to make. So mercy is on their iniquities and sin he'll remember no more in Christ's work. So now this doesn't mean that God has some sort of amnesia and that he forgets everything that's ever happened and that he somehow just blanked on it all, um, that he forgets the sin in the sense that we may be tended to think. Rather, this was promised that, that what it means is that in Jesus, our sins are paid and God's response to our sin is different now that he never recalls our sins to mind for judgment because they've already been paid. He never remembers them the same. They've been paid for in Christ. And that's completely and utterly unlike the old covenant that required another sacrifice. 
Hebrews 9, 24 through 26 says this. I'm not going to steal. I'm pretty sure it's John's thunder, but I'll just read it. For Christ has entered not only the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus deals with the sin for his people. The new covenant promises that our sins are paid. They aren't partially paid. They aren't sometimes paid. They aren't paid because we keep doing good or because we keep having faith enough. They are paid because of Jesus. And because they are paid, we do good. Because they are paid, we keep having faith. We keep believing. Because he changes us and he changes our relationship. And we can't undo that because we're children of God. That's why these are better promises and they're centered because they're centered on Jesus' work and not our own and because they're eternal, not temporal. That's why the author can say with certainty that Jesus can save completely and to the uttermost. Why he has confidence that true Christians will be, uh, will be seen by their endurance, not because of our works, but because of our minister and the promise of the new covenant. Jesus is working and his working does not fail. Because his, his, his working is not based on our obedience. It's based on his faithfulness and interceding on our behalf because our sins are paid. So the promise of the new covenant that he's going to change us. He's going to change our relationship. He's going to change the way God views his people's sins. Because Jesus had to deal with the problem of us, the problem of our sin and how it impacts our relationship, and the problem that we can never be good enough. And this leads us to the last verse, and then we'll wrap up. Verse 13. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Um, So remember the author has introduced this idea of the old covenant systems, or like the tabernacle, as a shadow. As a shadow. And that there's, there's the process, because there's a shadow, there's something greater. And here he's saying that the old way of the law, animal sacrifices, rituals, food restrictions, etc., as a, as a means, so hear this, he's saying that the law of covenant as a means to approach God is obsolete. He's telling them, hey, if you go back to that, it's worthless. It's poo. It has no power. Didn't work in the first place, it ain't going to work for you again. There's a new and a better way. In the Greek, this term for new, um, so there's two different ways um, in the Greek. Yeah, I, I don't know Greek, so this is what I've read, right? I've read this up by guys who do. But um, there's two different um, ways that new can be used. One is the concept of new is in timely order. The other represents this concept of basically new is in always being and eternal. And eternal. So as he's trying to communicate here, is that he's trying to say that there is now a new or eternal covenant that's been established, that's replaced the old that was just a shadow in the first place and it was always intended to be replaced. That there's a new way to approach God and it's not dependent on man but on God and Jesus and him crucified. And just as the sun rises up and the shadow dissipates as the sun goes up in the air and it gets trails straight over the tree and it's completely gone, so in the old covenant it is ready to vanish away 
for the sun has risen. The sun has risen. And you can't have it both ways to interact with God. You don't get to mix the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. The law points to grace. Grace does not need the law. So now this isn't me saying those who know their Bible well enough that there's no point to the law. There is. The Bible says that the law of God, not the covenant of law, but the law of God is holy, good, points us to Jesus. It has a great purpose today to expose our sin. But it is no longer the means by which we approach God to interact with him. Jesus is that means. His covenant is our hope, not our works or obedience. Jesus is a superior high priest who ministers a superior covenant with superior promises. Um, so as you go today, I just have really two things I want you to consider. One, first and foremost, are you a partaker in the new covenant? Are you a partaker in the new covenant? Have you been changed by God? Have you been changed by him? I didn't ask whether you went to church. I didn't ask whether you've been baptized. I didn't ask whether you prayed a prayer at one time. I didn't ask the good things you've done. I'm asking, have you been changed by God? Do you love him? Do you pursue him? Do you want him? Is he your deepest desire? Is he your pursuit? Is church and Christianity something you do or is it who you are? Have you been changed by God? Do you know him deeply? Do you know him like you would know a parent? Know him like you would know a sibling. Know him like you would know your best friend. I always give the example of, I can tell you a whole lot of facts about Tom Brady, Michigan, he had all these comebacks, all these Super Bowls, but I don't know him. I know a lot about him, but I don't know him. But there's a difference between that and knowing like my dad or my wife or my children. God's knowing is different. It's not knowledge only. It's being. It's connection. It's relational. It's personal. Are your sins forgiven? If you're not a partaker in the new covenant, or if you don't know, that's your job today. Wrestle with God. It's okay to wrestle with God. Don't lie to yourself. Don't just come up here and take communion, remembering how you became a Christian when you may not be one. Ask him for help. Ask him to give you new birth. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to forgive your sins. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Trust in the Lord Jesus, who lived the perfect life and died a substitutionary death and rose on the third day as is still interceding for his people that he can save you where you're at and change you. And the second, if you are a partaker, if you are a Christian, I would just encourage you, remember your high priest who's in, who's in heaven interceding for you. Remember him. I would ask you, where are you mixing the law and grace? Where are you still trying to earn from God what Christ has already earned? Where are you hiding your sin? Where are you covering up your struggles because you don't really believe that Jesus maybe paid it all, so you got to hide it? Where are you functioning in fear that's drawing you away from God rather than drawing you to the Father? You're not going to be perfect. But if you have a longing for him, pursue him. Tell others. Walk in community. Your goal is not to earn from him. The goal is to celebrate what he's earned and in response to that, obey and beg him for help in the journey knowing that the spirit can help you. Let me pray. 
Father, I just thank you for your word, and I just ask, God, would you help us right now? God, would you connect the dots that we need connected? When we read the book of Hebrews, would we just be blown away that you are superior, Jesus, and that you've made a superior covenant, and that there's superior promises, and that you really can do what you say you can do, and that the Holy Spirit really is real, and that we can be changed and keep being changed, and that we can delight in your law and the inner beings even when we struggle on the outside, and we can celebrate there's no condemnation in Christ. So God, right now, I just pray, would you speak to us, would you meet with us, and would you help us celebrate you? And however you need to teach us, do it in your name. Amen.